Maybe you saw them on the spinner rack way back when. Maybe you came across them in the quarter bins more recently. If you're like us, you may have heard of the new universe and wondered about them. But when you looked around online, all you found was a lot of cheap jokes about the worst comics ever made. And one day, we realized we could go through them all as if we were new readers and just see where it takes us. So let's begin. Welcome to the Spinner Rack here at the Marvel New Universe Comics Podcast. We are your hosts, Stephen with Star Brand Number One, and Andy with Spitfire and the Troubleshooters Number One. Uh, the New Universe was a self-contained universe and imprint from Marvel Comics, started by Jim Shooter in 1986 with the launch of eight new ongoing titles to celebrate Marvel's 25th anniversary. It was intended to be more realistic without magic aliens or secret histories and we are two chemists and comic book readers who are reading through the new universe two books a week in the order they were released describing them and commenting as we go we should also say this is actually a re-recording of the first episode to make up for the bad sound quality so we have now been doing this for a year and we hope if you're interested enough to follow along you'll excuse how rough some of these early episodes were and enjoy them we also have an intro episode and a six-month catch-up if you want to sort of speed ahead. We have a website, kickersinc.com, and you can also find us on Twitter, at kickersinc. Can you tell which was our favorite uh, <laughs> book? Uh, you might be surprised. Not a secret. <laughs> this week, I'll be covering star brand number one. Ken Connell is given a power called the Star Brand by a mysterious visitor from space who tells him to guard it well. Driven by his conscience, Connell struggles to find the most just and appropriate use for the brand's unlimited power. And this week, I'll be covering Spitfire and the Troubleshooters number one. Uh, aided by five prankster students, Professor Jenny Swenson steals her father's Max armor a construction suit built for use in a variety of capacities uh, when she suspects his murderer intends to use it as a weapon of war. All right. And uh, we'll just see where, if any discussions come up and as we go along. Um, jumping on into star brand number one. The New Universe uh, books started with these two we'll be discussing today, coming out on the same day. In uh, It's cover dated October 1986, but we believe it hit the newsstands July 15th, 1986. And uh, Star Brand has a cover with the main character, who we'll discover is Ken Connell. Um, it's sort of him just flying in space, looking towards the viewer, reader, and uh, hovering sort of above the earth with the moon in the background and the star field. Um, I don't think it's credited. I thought it was like John Romita Sr. or something, or Bushima. Yeah, that I do not know. So I do know that the moon is pink. <laughs> it's a... Um, it's not intended to be a, like a moment in the comic. Um, and 
title star brand with the sign of the star brand that we'll see in a minute. And if we've got the trade dress, the um, new universe books all started off with a um, unique uh, look on the, on the stand. It was a black border around the uh, cover with the words new universe um, at the top in white or a light color. Right. And it's, it's fantastic if you're flipping through back issue bins because it makes them really easy to spot. They pop. And yeah, you can. Uh, so do that. <laughs> that was one of the good things. I mean, a lot of um, things they did and didn't do to establish themselves as an independent line uh, we'll be commenting on as we go along and sort of mentioning the things they they got right and the things they missed. But starting off today, we uh, flip inside to the title, The Star Brand. Um, and it's got a little, um, I don't know if books have them so much to, lately, but they used to have like hunted and feared by a world uh, for the, you know, the X-Men kind of thing. So this one has, has a little uh, bit at the top. Um, there is a weapon in the universe more powerful than all the others. No more coveted, feared, loved, or hated thing exists. Only a fool or a madman or the right man would dare possess the star brand. I'm sold. Yeah, now we're talking. <laughs> yeah, I, I love those little punchy things. We, uh, we're trying to do that when we started the show there, but... Um, you know, we're, we're, we don't have the gift of gab of uh, Jim Shooter, who was the scripter for this uh, issue. The credits down here, Jim Shooter, scripter, John Romita Jr., penciler. Um, Michael Higgins is the editor, but uh, keep in mind that Jim Shooter is also the editor-in-chief of Marvel at this time. And the whole New Universe initiative was kind of his baby. So might be hard to tell your boss that you screwed something up. Could you uh, finish those pages for me, uh, Mr. Shooter? When I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> um, so the splash page with this title on it is is um, a really strong image by John Romita Jr. Um, of, uh, again, this Ken Connell in the same uniform he's wearing on the cover, but he is in like a railroad yard and he is lifting a locomotive over his head. And it is a real detailed drawing of the locomotive. And he's kind of struggling and maybe sinking into the ground there a little. But um, again, it's kind of out of the um, sequence of the book. So it's just a strong image to draw you in, I think. Flipping on into the uh, next page, we, we start our story proper. And it's a uh, young man on a motorcycle, motocross motorcycle, uh, riding around in the mountains. And um, the narration box says, somewhere in the Laurel Mountains of Western Pennsylvania, which is the roughly Pittsburgh area. And Ken is thinking to himself, uh, he's just in a helmet at this point, steep, too steep, no. And he's fighting the, the motorcycle as he's uh, going up the super steep uh, mountain. Stay on it, stay on it, lay on the bars. And he's uh, don't want to 
endo back down? Sorry, I don't know the terminology. Best guess from playing Nintendo games is that would be like going down, like only the front wheel is in contact with the ground kind of thing, like the reverse of a wheelie. Oh, okay. I'm not yeah. sure how it fits the situation of going up a near 90 degree vertical incline, but it probably does. <laughs> yeah. I th- okay. He's uh, he keeps thinking to himself and he, as he's struggling trying to to get up this mountain. Lay it down. Lay it down. Off. No. No way. He uh, he finally makes it up. Not bad. Feet came off the pegs. Landed sloppy, but okay. Where's the next hill? He's a guy who takes a challenge and accepts it and defeats it, moves on to the next challenge. So as he's uh, driving through these woods, he's suddenly, what? What happened here? Fire? There's a clearing ahead and everything's, as he says, these trees look broken and it looks like this place was bombed. Weird. continues um he's at a lookout point at the top what could have done that and he hears a name connell and he sees someone looking at his motorcycle and says nope yamaha that's the motorcycle connell is him who are you how'd you get up here how'd i get down here is a better question i almost didn't make it i was followed this is, uh, is an old man, and he's dressed kind of baggy clothes, but kind of normal looking. And he's a head taller than Ken Connell, who we'll later see is a pretty tall fella himself. So this uh, old man has a beard, long white hair, and is uh, talking very familiar to Ken. Um. Ken doesn't recognize him or anything. He's like, you have something to do with that burnt out patch back there? And what do you mean? Uh, are you hurt? Are you sick? And just says, you don't back away. That's good. Who are you? How do you know my name? I was hoping I'd find you here today. I want to give you something. Well, make it quick. Uh, we're running out of daylight. And then there's a close up of the old man's face and his eyes are glowing, maybe. Yeah, at minimum, they're kind of white out like Batman kind of eyes. Yeah. Okay. Look here, Connell. Look at my eyes. (laughs) (laughs) You flip the page, which is always good if you like, if you can punch a moment and then like flip a page to, to show you how much time has passed or something. Uh, Suddenly, Ken's waking up what morning what am i doing here just like covered in dew and cold and he sees his motorcycle uh, around him and he's still in the woods and he says to himself was that a dream and then he starts remembering what he had just gone through which is kind of a weird like storytelling technique of like fast forwarding and then flipping back um but and it's a nice visual where like Ken's face, be, you know, sort of is on one side of the panel, and then these memories on the other, and uh, there's a little coloring to sort of set it off. But this old man is, as he remembers it, telling him, 
A peculiar interstellar phenomenon, a bright flash, drew my attention to this area of space. I'm glad it did. I've been looking for someone like you for a long time. Beings like you and me are a rare breed. He's like, time is running out for me. I'm dying. And think of it as a tattoo. He rolls up his sleeve and there's a funny looking mark, which we know from the cover of the comic is the star brand. It's like a combination of a moon and a star in the middle of it. A crescent moon. Just put your hand on it and it'll all do the rest. And Ken's memory stops and he's like, on my palm, he looks at his hand and it's there. Yeah. He's been roofied and tattooed. <laughs> what kind of an evening in the mountains is this? Ken's like starts rubbing his hand. I can't get it off. It's real. What? Old man. Old man. We got to talk. Where are you? He looks around and he follows some tracks over to, I guess, a cliff. He looks down and there's a body at the bottom of the cliff. And he, this is where it starts getting interesting, jumps down, even though this looks like a long way away and possibly killed the old man. He jumps down yelling, old man. The old man wasn't even human. What the heck? The body at the bottom of the cliff looks kind of desiccated or something. It's, it's Yeah, it's definitely got like a weird wrinkly alien kind of face to it, though. Yeah, the overall shape is still humanoid, but it, like it's, yeah, a, a, like a rubbery mask or something. And it's um, smoking it was, like it got burnt to a crisp or something. <laughs> the old man was not human. Oh, and he's dead. I don't believe this is happening. This thing's on my hand, and now he's dead. And Ken's uh, pretty confused, and he has more memories. He told he knew he was dying, and he told me all about it so carefully. And the old man's telling him, in your language, it would be called the Star Brand. You're the perfect choice. I can't tell you how relieved I am you accepted it. I hope you won't regret it later. Too much. <laughs> Then Ken uh, is like, I better bury him. And he, again, just very casually rips out this side of the mountain, puts the old man in a cave there, and then covers him with this like gigantic rock. Um, then he flies back to where his motorcycle is. And as he drives away, is saying, got to go home and think. <laughs> So yeah, it's pretty interesting that you know he's woken up, surprised that he has a tattoo, but then all of a sudden knows that he can fly and carry heavy things. And you know, yeah, like, he, I mean, like, yeah, he's just like subconsciously aware of it now, or something, and, or he's just sort of accepting it up to a point. Um, as we say, hours later at the Westgate Village Apartments in a southwest suburb of Pittsburgh. It's a uh, very suburban looking area. And Ken is taking his motorcycle into his apartment, which is pretty spacious. And then he's sitting on his couch thinking to himself, and he has a pit t-shirt, P-I-T-T, 
which I believe is a reference to the University of Pittsburgh and not any later developments in the certainly new universe line. He's thinking to himself, I can feel it. It's always warmer than the rest of my skin. And then the, if I concentrate on it, the warmth spreads. It fills up my body and it, it becomes my body. And real me is just nothing. A template that tells my energy body what shape to take. I don't look any different, but the feeling is indescribable. So we get a little idea of what he thinks this is, is going on and how it feels for him. And it's not like he was, you know, woke up like a Kryptonian or some like invulnerable thing that could fly. He's got, uh, it just feels like he turns from himself into like an energy copy of himself or something. Yeah. So know. definitely very different. Uh, than like a typical Superman power, right? It's not just like I'm invulnerable or you know I feel nothing or you know super strength. That's it's a little a little different than that. At least trying to make it a little different, I think. Yeah, there there there's a little trying to put their own spin on things, but he immediately starts um, trying to burn himself and break his house. Uh, <laughs> he, he sets uh, fire on the stove. Huh, nothing can hurt me. And I'm so strong. Bashes the uh, ceiling with his couch. Oh, well. And uh, crushes a, a barbell. There doesn't seem to be any limit. That barbell will not come back to haunt us at some point. <laughs> no foreshadowing. Oh, sorry. Sorry. The... Uh, the next thing he does is a little flying. It's like my energy body isn't subject to gravity. It just goes where I want and brings the flesh and blood along. It's weird. But he goes uh, up in the sky, flies around a bit, and uh, we flash over, as it says, moments and miles later in West Mifflin, another southwest suburb. And there's a new character who is a friend of his that uh, is... Has a nice house, but he is playing with a banged up bicycle frame that he found on the side of the road. Um, junk dealer slash psychiatrist. Hi, Myron. Ken, I, I didn't hear your car. Myron, I, I flew here. Uh, but he's, he's like, what are you doing with this junk, Myron? Nonsense. It, it just needs a little work. You're nuts, Myron. <laughs> I'm nuts. You're the one who flew here. Maybe you should lay down on the couch. Save it for your therapist, junk for your patients, Myron. And uh, he demonstrates that he can actually fly to this guy and uh, straightens out his bicycle frame while he's doing it. My word, how are you doing that? Um, so they have sit down and have a conversation. Ken is obviously not a big believer in uh, secret identities. Perhaps he never read any comic books growing up, but um, they they have a quick chat. And Myron, of course, believes that Ken can do this, but he's like, uh, "We should go find this body that you hid for some reason." And you know, alien contact would be a huge thing. And also these powers would be a, like a huge development in science or history or something. Um, Ken's kind of, yeah, I keep wondering if I should call the police or NASA or something. 
And then, but Myron's like, you know, we should, we should go find the evidence first because, you know, whatever this is, it's, you know, if it's got physical proof, that's, that's key. And uh, he also says he suspects that this old man put you under a form of hypnosis, a sort of sleep teaching to enhance your recall. And uh, Ken's like talking more about how, what the old man had said. It took courage to use the weapon. He kept calling it the weapon. And um, he said, kind of said something about, oh, shouldn't you be fearless to have it then? And the old man told him, no, that's the absolutely the opposite of what you need to be. You need to be very thoughtful and considering, you know, things, not just a fearless person who'll go, you know, running around like a crazy person with this ultimate weapon. You know what his last words were to me? Guard it well. Well, seems like a good time to guard it well because Myron's uh, house explodes, or at least the window. <laughs> yep. And suddenly, yeah, they go, they go flying, and suddenly there is a, well, alien warrior there, I guess. Um, yeah, it totally looks like a weird action figure line kind of thing, right? So this big silver suit, you know, kind of like a pointy head. He's got these gold ray guns, one strapped to his waist, and then you can kind of see through like some windows in the face shield, like some greenish, monstery looking guy. <laughs> Yeah. It would have made uh, a good action figure anyway. Very toyetic, as they say now. Um, yeah, John Romita Jr. doing great, great stuff here. You know, very down to earth one minute, crazy alien warrior the next. Um, and uh, yes, hands are kind of more like tentacles or something, or snakes. Um, so yeah, he's holding something that's a weapon, and then he's firing in between Myron and Ken. And they both go fly flying. And uh, and is thinking to himself, another alien trying to kill me. He wants the brand. And then he flies right out past the alien saying, stay down, Myron, and zooms out into the sky. And he's definitely not just leaving Myron there to defend himself. He's a... Uh, Trying, he's he's saying to himself that he'll lead the alien away to where he can fight, and uh, not get Myron killed. He's uh, thinking to himself as he goes along, trying to analyze the situation. What's he fly, firing at me? Explosive bullets, laser beams? I don't know. And he's thinking that the guy, the alien, probably knows all about this power, and that he's either uh, fire using a weapon that can hurt him or um, is trying to just um, fake him out somehow. But he's like, what should I do? What should I, should I turn and fight? Hey, there's a good place to go. Make a stand. The slag dump. dump Everybody dump. likes a good slag dump. In the 80s, Pittsburgh was about uh, 60 to 70% slag dumps. You could find them. <laughs> Pittsburgh, slag dumps, and the people who love them. <laughs> it's a, um, so I live in Pittsburgh now, and it's, uh, it's cleaned up a lot from um, its uh, rust belt days, I guess. But I think in the 80s, you could still find a few things like this uh, around that they've been built on since then, but. 
know. If you build a Walmart on top of an old slag dump, I feel like that's just breaking even. <laughs> Maybe a slight edge to the slag dump. Okay. So there is a slag dump, which just looks like, you know, low hills. And then there's some rail cars there. So the railroad is going by it. I think they would, yeah, the rail cars full of slag from the foundries would just dump stuff off this cliff. And that's how you get these hills built up. So he's thinking to himself, I'll duck in, duck in behind these railroad cars and uh, sneak up behind him, I guess. Wait a second. He's got an even bigger gun, which, which yes, we see he does. And then the thing like blows up the uh, tra- rail car that's right behind Ken. Oh no, he's coming. I got to do something. He starts freaking out a little. I got to throw something at him. And he feels the power kind of slipping away as his concentration is gone. And the aliens uh, shoots at him some more, more explosions around him. He's just lying there like, ah. So the alien comes up and sort of wraps its hand around him and is holding him up and talking to him directly. Surrender the weapon. And and then he talks to him a little bit more. Very chatty, actually. And he's a fairly big, um, compared to Ken, he's also uh, slightly bigger than him. Listen to me. The old man deceived you. He was not dying. He... You have been duped into playing a role in an intrigue you cannot be comprehend. And um, basically tells him the old man's the enemy and you should give me the weapon so I can fight him. Um, he threatens him a little bit more. You are weak. I am strong. Ouch. <laughs> Dude, that wasn't unnecessary. So Ken thinks about how the old man said I was the right guy. And finally he's like... Fight back, fight back. Don't give it up. And no. And the alien is surrounded by white. And Ken is like exploding from within or something. And he like releases the power. It's like the human bomb or maybe. Oh, human bomb. That's a good one. The DC character. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's So Ken's now saying, you scared me for a minute there, but I'm okay now, and now I'm angry. And it's just a small panel on this page, but he's holding a locomotive, and I think it's the same sort of picture that you saw in the splash page on the first page, um, where it's like over his head, and he's about to throw it at this guy. So um, the... uh, Galen keeps shooting at him, and Ken's talking to him like, you know, you want this power jerk? Well, eat it. And then he, there's a real explosion. Wow. And that's it. The next page, we just have Ken sort of naked on top of the slag heap. And Myron's coming up with a baseball bat. This Myron had like, you know, going to try to take the alien himself if he had to. But he's like, what happened? I don't know. I just, my energy self just seemed to flow out and I went Nova or something. Where's your clothes? Burned off. Well, no great loss. When he grabbed me, I wet my pants. <laughs> oh, this is, this is years before Kevin Smith used that uh, trope for Batman in uh, re- re- 
writing um, Batman Year One. Makes more sense here than with Batman. Definitely, Ken's a, an amateur at this. So, many minutes later, he goes to a uh, apartment in Whitehall, another suburb, and uh, finds a friend, Duck Debbie Duck, and uh, I guess they had she's an old friend. And we're not quite sure at first if she's a girlfriend or not. They're pretty close and they have this sort of um, code to each other. Hey, Duck, quack. Hey, Kenny, quack yourself. And uh, she's listening to the TV, which is having a uh, exposition dump of uh, the local news talking about a strange explosion on the local slag heap. But uh, Ken just comes in and is like, I sort of lost my clothes and had to borrow Myron's and um do you mind if I stay here? Well I just uh you send you know you look cold let me get a blanket for you and he's already fallen asleep on her couch. The next morning she drops him off at his apartment. Don't worry Kenny uh she'll tell his boss that you know he's he's uh, needs to um get some new keys or something. Thanks for everything, Duck. Good old Deb. Um, he reminds, he says something about um, he should take her out to dinner or something. Oh, that reminds me. I've got a date with Barb tonight. This guy gets around a lot, I guess. Two ladies. What? What? That's crazy. And he's like, oh, man, I lost my driver's license. Visa. So a minute later, uh, we've got a, uh, he's back in the mountains uh, and he's flying out of his car. And I'm just going to look up what that is, like a Corvette Stingray or something, like a 60s model. Yeah, it's kind of one of those low, flat, fancy looking convertibles, but yeah, I'm not sure exactly what it would be. It's a pretty nice uh, car, but as we find out, Martin, uh, Ken's like a mechanic and so... You know, car guys are always having a nice one for themselves. So he's uh, thinking to himself that um, he's taking the day off work and is possibly mad, but he's got to find out what happened. And um, he goes back to where he buried that alien, moves that huge rock aside, and he's like, yeah, he's gone. The other alien was telling the truth. Uh, what's on that floor? And he finds some clothes. And he knows that they're not the old man's. They look like the ones that he was riding when he was on the motorcycle. And uh, he's like, hmm, a farewell present? So long, sucker. What have I got myself into? So he grabs these clothes and heads home. And later in the barber, in the apartment of Barbara Petrovic. And this is the Barb he was talking about before that he had a date with. Barb's a single mom, a couple of very young kids. And um, they head up to bed or no, to watch TV after dinner and while Barb and Ken stay downstairs to neck like crazed weasels. <laughs> so they're kind of, you know, they're chatting and it's some, uh, some nice sort of romantic dialogue. But um, Barb sort of steps in it when she's like... Uh, and I'm all yours. Is that what you're worried about? Now you know it's safe to ask me to marry you. Uh, mm, um, 
certainly uh, Ken panics more than he did when two, an alien was trying to kill him. I, uh, Barb, I, I don't think I, uh, oh, just, uh, you know, forget I said it. Barb realizes she, uh, she's dealing with a commitment phobic uh, young man here. And uh, they sit down to uh, do some PG-13, perhaps level petting. And Ken suddenly is like, what's that noise? Wait, uh, what's going on upstairs? Barb's, of course, like, you know, come on. What happened to the crazed weasel stuff? He goes upstairs and the kids are acting strangely. And uh, the little girl and boy have like a strange look in their eye. And the girl actually has a, like a toy gun that Barb doesn't recognize. Where'd you get that gun? And Ken's like, uh, wait, that's not one of Bobby's toys. That's, uh, he recognizes one of the alien's guns. Six kid doing. Ken uh, gets uh, scared and he's talking to himself. I thought he was dead. He's, he's still alive. And he runs out of the house with Barb like, huh, what? And then suddenly she's she gets to the door and he's like nowhere in sight because he's flown up. And then we see him, you know, flying around. Where is he? Where is he? Hours later, he's like calling Myron. That thing's still alive. I don't know what's going to happen. I must have drugged that little girl too or hypnotized her. And I can't turn my back. I can't sleep. What's going on? Myron tries to talk him down because now he's like a super powered guy who's freaking out with like paranoia and everything but um he's like i hate to worry you even more but the fbi was just here looking for you or is that going around asking for questions so very curious and uh, i didn't tell him anything anyway is uh suddenly um there's a tap at the door it's duck and she comes in and uh it's like checking on him he's like and uh, she's like, is something wrong with Barb? It's like, no, but I probably screwed that up too. I wish I could make it better, whatever it is. You always have me, you know. She is super supportive of him. But she sees that gun sitting there. Hey, what's that? And he like freaks out on her. Um, and then she's like, what are you doing? And uh, Ken's like, Oh, he's doing it to me again. I'm all tied up in knots. Uh, I gotta, I gotta figure this out. She, she leaves. He's like, "You've helped me more than I can tell you. Thanks. I love you, babe." Oh, you can use the L word with her, but not with Barb. I see. <laughs> Sounds like a complicated relationship. Interesting. Uh, next morning, we get a little glimpse of Ken's work life at, uh, as it says, McMullen and Zare. BW in Dormont in a reconditioning shop where he's doing mechanics or auto body stuff. His boss, uh, older guy, is uh, telling him to move a car downstairs. And um, when he goes outside, he sees the car, but he's like, wait a second, why's the engine still cold? And Ken has left, goes back home, puts on the suit the alien gave him. And is like, tonight I expect to get into a fight. And we have this sort of, uh, the look from the cover where he's in this motocross outfit and his gloves and boots and he looks like he's ready for trouble. Next page. And 
at this point we're uh this is starting page 23 usually books are like 22 pages at this time so little if you're, uh, if you're watching a cartoon at this point you would think man how is this going to wrap up in this time it's going to be one of those two powder <laughs> two-parter episodes i'm gonna have to wait a week yeah there's no way they could get, provide a satisfactory resolution in two minutes two pages right or could they <laughs> or could they Ken is the first panel is flying through the um, time barrier. This, is, this looks <laughs> like when Superboy would like fly into the future to join the Legion, but it's just Ken going through through the air. And suddenly he's in the Laurel Mountains again, and we see the alien standing in front of this sort of round metallic thing, and Ken is starts talking to it as he flies down. I've been flying all around looking for you. I was hoping to run into you. Seemed like a good air place to, to look. I saw the ship. I assume it's a spaceship rising out of the ground. That's a neat trick. That the guy, the guy, the alien had been hiding underground and sort of came up. And so when he thought he had killed him at the slag heap, he just sort of went into the ground, he surmises. So Ken's talking a bit more and is kind of um you know, walking him through all the stuff that he'd figured out is I brought your gun back here. Oops, breaks it in you know, a million pieces. And uh, he's like, maybe you should start sinking into the ground again because I want you out of here. He takes a gunshot, then just sort of shrugs it off. And then he comes up and he grabs him sort of by the scruff of the neck, except it's the alien spaceship space suit and says, I got it together now, you know, this time for good. And I'm angry. And when you're sick to death of being surrounded and harassed, and I've had it with you, so get off my planet. Throws him into the spaceship, and then the disc just takes off into the air. And the very last panel, whether he meant to or not, the old man picked the right man. I've got the power, and I'm going to keep it if I have to kick every butt in the universe. As he breaks the alien's rifle thing. And we have a tag, only the beginning. Only the beginning of Starbrand and the New Universe podcast. Indeed. The, uh, well, I think we're all, both off to a good start, I hope. I don't know. <laughs> if only we could look into the future. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm sure the, uh, New Universe will be a very successful publishing venture, and our podcast will also be very successful. Greatest thing since the launch of the regular Marvel Universe, right? Indeed. Well, let's see. Let's not um, do like a discussion yet. We'll maybe um, have some thoughts about both these books and then get through the second one. Sounds good. All right, well, it looks like it's time for Spitfire and the Troubleshooters. Issue one came out at the same time. So is Spitfire the woman, the machine, something else completely? <laughs> the passphrase, the code name. All of these things. <laughs> we'll be well and confused by the end, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, issue one, um, yeah, same uh, release date it should have came out the exact same week july 15th 86 um it's our second book of the new universe we're kind of reading them in order and our cover kind of shows us what to expect i suppose so 
there's the Big Max suit. It says big red robot armor suit. Not at all like Iron Man. This is kind of big and clunky uh, looking, but impressive nonetheless. And on the cover, it's you know underneath the Spitfire and the Troubleshooters title, like the armor is kind of zooming through the air with its fist raised and uh, like five college MIT kids are all kind of hanging from it in different states of having fun or being terrified. So whether or not this shows up in the book or if it's just a fun cover, we'll find out, I suppose. <laughs> uh, but it is kind of a fun cover. Spitfire and the Troubleshooters is a fun logo, too. It's, um, you know, it, it evokes sort of an older style, you know, and the Troubleshooters. Yeah, a little buddy team. <laughs> um, but yeah, so diving right into the book, the um, it gets us started really quick. Um, first panel, we're not at the splash page talking about who's writing it. It's a guy in a lab coat sweating, says, I won't tell you. And our narration says his name is Carl, Dr. Carl Swenson. He has exactly 13 seconds to live. Next panel, 11 seconds. So we're counting down this poor guy. Um, so he's, looks like he's in a lab. There's a bunch of machinery. You know, we see hints of some kind of robot suit or like robotic arms and legs menacing him. He says, I won't give you what you want. It's my laboratory, my work. I will not allow. And the suit replies, you don't see it yet, do you, Doc? And it launches some heavy piece of equipment, basically just crushing him against the wall um what you want doesn't matter anymore i get the designs whether you cooperate or not all you get to decide is how fast you die Oof. all right sorry dr carl swenson you are not sticking around um he is so he... not spitfire apparently no <laughs> this is a three-page comic book and it's over swenson is dead <laughs> <laughs> It's an anthology title, you know. They yeah, you know, different Spitfires every week. I don't know. Some football team story takes over afterward. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so uh, he's still hanging in there. He clicks a remote, and some machines around the lab kind of kick into action. Looks like they got like welding torches, uh, kind of trying to save him from the robot there, but to no avail. They're still counting down: four, three, two. It kind of grabs and says, ah, cute, trying to weld me with one of your little industrial robots, huh? A couple of thousand volts might have fried me if it weren't for this suit you built. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, so let's see how you like it, Doc. And it looks like maybe he's kind of bridging the gap between the elect arc welder and the machine and kind of electrocutes and finishes off poor Carl Swenson and makes off with a cartoonish looking safe uh, which clearly had what the guy wanted and says with or without you we get what's ours so okay <laughs> it's like the beagle boys with the uh taking the safe away I don't know. <laughs> the beagle boys <laughs> except deadlier i don't think the beagle boys ever killed anybody not that we saw on, on page, but it all happened off panel. <laughs> uh, so, they were so, implicated in many uh, unsolved crimes. I mean, they definitely had a lot of wanted posters up. So, 
Um, so yeah, we get to the splash page then. So we open with the death of Carl Swenson, and then our splash page, the title of this comic is Beginnings, and a long list of creators here. So we got Elliot Brown, John Morelli as the plot, uh, Jerry Conway as the scripter, uh, Herb Trimpey for pencils, and Sino and Morgan for inks. So you know, a whole bunch of people worked on this. Uh, we got Bob Harris, editor, and Jim Shooter, editor-in-chief. And the splash pages, all, all of the kids, it looked like they're in some large room, probably within MIT, assembling a tractor. Uh, so uh, it says, outside in an autumn night in Cambridge, warm with the memory of summer. Ooh, that's nice. <laughs> Inside, in the chairman's office, of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, known to its voluntary inmates as the Toot. The Toot. <laughs> it's a dignified nickname for a bunch of high-powered, intelligent grad students. Uh, it's, it's also pretty warm and about to get warmer. So uh, we get introduced to the troubleshooters here. And honestly, it's a little confusing to try and figure out who they all are. Uh, we get names like Ferris and Giotti and Terry and Eric. Um, so there's, and uh, I think that's maybe all we get to start. Um, Andy shows up as well. Um, but yeah, there's one guy kind of standing and, you know, trying to keep them on task. Uh, somebody's putting an engine into the tractor. Uh, another two are uh, one girl. Uh, putting the big tire on um, basically they're they're pranking the crusty old bean that's what we find out um, and it's not long before they're interrupted by Jenny Swenson um, so she kind of she walks in says before what before chairman Dibble catches you planting a tractor on his new Karastan carpet and suspects all and suspends all five of you for half a semester. Oh no, Professor Swenson, it's just a joke. <laughs> um, but I guess yeah, that was sort of a there's sort of a long-standing tradition of like engineering-based pranks at MIT where they call them hacks in the comic, and that comes true. Um, the yeah, so yeah, that, that's kind of what they're doing here. Jenny kind of mentions the disappearing cafeteria, which I tried to figure out if that was a real thing. Best I could tell, there was a disappearing office prank where a guy was coming in as a new president, so he didn't know the building well. And they like perfectly hid his office door behind like a giant bulletin board. So they like thought he was in the wrong <laughs> place. You know, he figured this big building and stuff. Oh, <laughs> so nice. Kind of I, know, I know that I always think of them as doing <clears throat> stuff like hacking the, um, the scoreboard at like football games and stuff to have it like you know your team sucks and you know stuff like that i don't know yeah usually but, not trying to cause harm uh, but also kind of trying to show off what they could pull off as far as things go um but yeah so she kind of busts them um she's like it's like well so i think this is funny you know, it's not that great let me see your plans so she's like oh you're not going to turn us in it's like on the contrary i'm going to help you if you're going to do something, do it right. My dad always taught me a long, oh, uh oh, sounds like somebody's coming. So uh, she busts them, but also kind of hears, presumably, the trusty old dean coming in there. Uh, 
And so rather than have them caught, she hops out into the hallway to head them off. And in fact, they were looking for her. I says, Jennifer, these men were just looking for you. Glad I ran into you then, Chairman Dibble. Let's talk in my office, not the one with the tractor being assembled. Um, but what did uh, those kids put in my office? Another <laughs> tractor. <laughs> Unexpected. Every year a tractor. <laughs> um, but uh Terry, uh, you know, the young black woman who's one of the troubleshooters is kind of like listening through the mail slot. Uh, so she's like, they're going to Jenny's office. Sounds like something important. Time to hit the ledge. <laughs> okay. Uh, we, we cut to uh, Swenson's office and the guy introduces himself as Detective Sloan and his partner Jenkins. She's like, police detectives? Did I leave my car in a no parking zone? Um, and then we see the kids are literally out on like the window ledge outside of the building. So, and am I teach a, a toot tradition <laughs> as far as well, if you're going to make your ledge like a meter wide, I don't yeah. know what you expect, but it also looks like they've got like listening devices too. Like, you know, they all have headphones on, like they're putting a thing to the wall, like they're going to listen in. Um, or maybe they just have her office bugged all the time. <laughs> and not weird relationship they have here i don't know I really uh, like her or not i don't know <laughs> we shall see um but yeah, trouble so they, stalkers they'll call them <laughs> they they catch some conversation and it's about your father dr carl swenson he's dead okay break it to me easy uh freak lab accident it looks like uh but of course we have to check it out sorry miss you know, not much tech there. It's like, Daddy, oh no. Uh, and we cut immediately to the funeral. So, two days later, uh, we're moving quickly here. He died. She was informed. The hack was interrupted. And now we're at uh, the professor's funeral. <clears throat> uh, so, here we're introduced to a new character uh, who's standing there talking to Jenny. He says, Carl. Swenson was more than an employee. Yes, I'd like to think he was my friend. She's thinking in her head, but never. Oh, she says, Dad spoke of you often, Mr. Crotzy, and then in her head, but never as a friend. So we're suspicious of this guy already. Uh, says, forgive me, but I must bring up a business matter. I'm afraid your father's contract was quite specific. You've got 24 hours to get all of your per all of any personal property out of his lab. Uh, it's like, oh, but I'll bend the rules and give you till 10 a.m. tomorrow. It's like, oh, thanks, jerk. <laughs> gotta watch that contract. Yeah, you gotta read those things. <laughs> um, so Giotti says, and oh, that's Fritz Crotzi owns an R&D company out on the turnpike. Helpfully, the editor tells us that R&D means research and development. Oh. I never knew that. Huh? So I was wondering. Must have... Uh been a like big thing in the 80s i don't know research and development do those things go together yeah no. i thought you just research and then just set it in a drawer somewhere <laughs> but we, we get a, a far away shot as he's kind of talking about uh Kratzy a little bit and how he's is super security conscious um and there's a weird situation where uh professor swenson who's now dead his house was built on Kratzy's property and is also like strange looking. So there's a house, 
like a little attachment thing into the backyard and like a little extra building, which looks more like a lab or a big garage. Um, so again, kind of strange that he's working on his boss's property. I'm not sure why you would sign up for that unless you got a really good deal on rent or something. But And they say that like they, people call his place Fort Kratzy because he's so security conscious. But from this aerial view, it looks just like a suburban block with like a couple guards wandering around, but there's no like fence. It's just some whatever. It's a really weird setup. Yeah. From that angle, anyway. I don't know. You could maybe be better served in some sort of industrial park where you had some distance from the suburb. Or maybe it's like in that park. You know, it's in an industrial spot and it's just made to look like a house. So he. Yeah, actually, maybe because, you know, you don't want to. Um, let them wander around, but you so you give them a place on the campus that's uh, secure, but it looks like their normal home. Doesn't look like a prison cell at all. Doesn't look like a prison cell at all. <laughs> yeah. Then it's not a prison, is it, Doctor uh, Swenson? I don't know why you want that in your contract, but yeah, geez, so picky. Honest <laughs> uh. not put you in a prison. Okay, fine. It's there <laughs> in black and white now. Yeah. Jail, though, that's a different thing. Jail's not a prison. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta read the fine print, Swenson. <laughs> so, uh, you know, a car pulls up and Jenny's getting walked into the building and basically you just watched and harassed the whole time as she's kind of looking through. Uh, so, I mean, they don't even give her a box to bring stuff. So they're just expecting her to like grab two things, stuff it in her pocket and go. Um She's wandering through and makes it to the lab and into his personal computer. And she's remembering how they used to leave messages for each other. So as the guy's counting her down, 955, you got five minutes. <clears throat> like he's getting nervous or something. And she gets onto the computer, but needs the password. What would dad pick? Uh, blank's constant? <laughs> Wait a minute. My old password. From the Stanford computer and my dad's pet name for me when I was a kid. Spitfire is in fact Professor Swenson's password. Spitfire. 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 And, you know, ever the plan ahead type, uh, Professor Swenson had left a message and she only gets a piece of it and says, if you're reading this, then I must be dead. Don't let Kratzy. And then boom, 10 a.m. guy with a hat uh, is harassing her. All right, we got to go. Um, so she kind of does the old spin around and like, you know, click away from the screen thing. Uh, hopefully you didn't see it. Uh, but basically she clicking it off with her butt. Yeah. No, or her hands behind her back too. Oh, uh, okay. No <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the, uh, <clears throat> yeah. So they basically rush her out uh, having gotten nothing, right? <laughs> she's, she's taken no personal belongings whatsoever. Um, and yeah, so then we, we cut to later again, uh, with Jenny over on the phone. Um, and da -da -da. so she gets off the phone, she's kind of looking for Kratzy, but he's not available. And then we get a little bit of character building, I guess, you know, she's doing some, uh, martial arts, uh, that her sensei is telling her how she's not concentrating uh, but she takes him down anyway, <laughs> and he says, you act from anger, not inner strength. I am disappointed. You must ride through your anger, or it will destroy you. 
what are you trying to say here, man? <laughs> uh, and she says, sorry, dad always said I had a redhead's temper. Okay, I used to have red hair. I don't feel like that's a fair stereotype. I'm starting to make me mad. Uh, don't get angry. <laughs> the veins popping out. <laughs> and so you could also call you Spitfire too. Everyone's Spitfire now. Everyone is Spitfire. And so this guy's not laying off. He's like, "Is it your father who haunts your thoughts?" Yes. Then if you would have peace within yourself. Set his memory to rest. It's only been like three days. Like, give her a break. <laughs> I, I Look, will. <laughs> end of the week. That's all you got. I'm sorry. You had five <laughs> minutes to collect his things. You have one week to mourn him. Come on. <laughs> life goes on. Get back to work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, she is not really listening uh she's like she's like i respect you but not the way you think sensei i believe in action not introspection yeah go for it jenny uh and so she's convinced she needs to, to find out what that message said um so we cut to the kids in the dorms and they're basically like working on another prank to uh split the yale guys uh rowboat in half with a metal wire um but uh she pops in on them as they kind of explain their plans and, you know, she starts to talk about, um, you know, what she wants to do. Uh, we get a little clip of Giotti. Um, you know, she says, You're... so, you know, they're, as they're talking about, you know, what to do about Crossy, she's like, Hey professor, after two years in your structural engineering class, I'd do just about anything for you. Uh, I, I mean, you always helped me that all of us, you helped all of us. That is. A little, a little hint at the crush there uh, that Giotti seems to have on his professor. Um, We're always impressed with your pants. Plans! And how they, um, anyway. Indeed. Um, but yeah, so they're running into a problem like, so the Kratzi owns the property, right? So it's not really legal for her to get in there. The death has been ruled an accident, uh, but she's starting to suspect um, and she needs to find out what was on that computer. Uh, but she doesn't want them uh, to help right away. It's just, she's just thinking to herself, what am I doing? Am I actually considering involving these kids in my plan? I better go. Um, and Eduardo's like, we can help. Just let us help. I'm like, nope, nope. <laughs> um, so she, as she heads out, they are like, ah, fat chance. Sounds like a little larceny. So the, the troubleshooters in action, no doubt. All right. So things things are moving pretty quickly. Uh, Jenny's found her way to her father's house again, but this time she's kind of looking at it from across the street, kind of hiding behind a tree. Uh, there's a bunch of shadows of armed guards all over the place. Uh, but down the road, a fire gets set off like a column of flame up in the air. She's like, huh? It's like, well, just... Just what I needed, a little distraction. There goes Kratzi's guards. And she knows right away that it's the troubleshooters. It's like very convenient and very dangerous. I told them I didn't want them involved. Why didn't they listen to me? Uh, who am I kidding? Why did I go to them in the first place? I all but asked for their help. Um, and, and in fact, they've beaten her in there. So as she gets the door open, you know, they're already in there uh, messing around with the lock and the security system. Hey, Jenny, um, we put a tractor in Kratzi's office. That's what you wanted, right? 
<laughs> Two tractors, double the trouble. He'll never find his way out of these tractors. Come on. <laughs> so, so they're all in like black suits, though it's daytime. So, uh, and the white pants maybe don't uh, uh, just don't hide very well, but maybe that's <laughs> part of the the toots uniform as well. <laughs> they they got a little bit of a, a team up outfit going on. Um, but yeah, they're running out of time. So she starts mentioning, oh, before my father passed, you know, he's always doing things before he passed away. Lots of plans, this guy. Uh, he kept a few secrets, uh, but let's see if I can get this message. And we don't get to see the message, but she's reading it and finds that it's about Max, M-A-X. This is all about Max. Um, the name of the armor, not Spitfire, Max. Um and she's like, this is what he's working on when he was killed. And she opens up kind of like a secret cabinet in the wall and the suit from the cover comes out. It says, meet M-A-X, man amplified experiment. Dad's life work, the ultimate heavy duty construction machine, the final prototype, model two. Uh, never will be another prototype. Uh, apparently, Kratzi has model one, bigger, bulkier, dad held off giving him this model because he began to suspect Kratzi lied about his plans for M-A-X, Max. Uh, not Spitfire, Max. <laughs> they're, they're all, wow. <laughs> oh, Max, that's great. This thing's amazing. <laughs> um, and, you know, so she's not done yet. So they're in the lab. And it turns out this was that back building that we saw before, kind of weird ones. And like, there's a few more secrets left. And so she presses a button and the walls come up, kind of opens up uh, three spaces into one big space. And she's like, come on, check this out. You'll see. And they come around to tractor trailers. So there's like three semi trucks. Um, one of them kind of looks like an Optimus Prime, like the flat truck this probably has a better name but i don't really know um and yeah, one of them I, looks like uh the truck from bj and the bear if any of you were re watching tv in the 70s but... nice nice um <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah the labs split into three parts and they're all the back the trailers of these trucks and so like the walls fall down and you've got a bright blue a bright green and a bright red truck and trailer combo all attached together which become the lab um which is pretty wild and how in the world did he sneak these things in here <laughs> maybe it wasn't always guarded uh, did he build them himself from parts i'm i'm confused but it's cool it's it's like night rider or mask or something and all the walls fall down and the kids all are driving the trucks and of course they know how to drive them and they say Gear up troubleshooters and move out. Vroom. According to at least one blogger I came across, this was the most unbelievable part of the new universe was that these most kids know how to drive a semi truck. That's that's <laughs> crazy. You'd need a, like a CDL license or something. What the heck? Okay, well. Yeah, I'm, I don't, I'm not flying with that one, but. I don't think it's crazy that they could drive it or at least get it out of first gear and stuff. So. I think you make the uh, point of them like being uh, tr tractor like assemblers that they're. Yeah, right. They can build engines like they're not just computer nerds or something like they have a lot of practical kind of engineering skills. So 
they know how this stuff works. Um, so yeah, they take off the guards, start shooting at them. So, you know, welcome to the world of being criminals. Uh, uh, it says, yeah, they've stolen this lab. It's not theirs. And so, you know, until we find a way to prove Krotzy killed my father, I guess that's exactly what we are, thieves. Uh-oh. Uh, but hey, what goes a troubleshooter if you're not getting into trouble? Um, but generally, the crusty old dean doesn't start open, opening fire at you, I suppose. So it's a, it's a different world now. <laughs> uh, don't come to my department, man. I don't <laughs> I'm not going to risk that. Tipping over the freezers. Um, so we cut to Kratzy International, uh, main headquarters outside of Boston. And we have a new character, Phelan, who's talking to Kratzy. And then we have what we presume then was the killing machine in the beginning, the Max 1 armor uh, with a guy sitting in there. And, you know, they talk a little bit about Carl Swenson uh, and sort of how it was he had you know an amazing sort of design idea they've tried their best to kind of you know make their version one suit at least as good as that but also added a ton of weapons to it uh, so here we get to kind of finally see what these type of suits can do um but it's got a machine gun it can fly um it's got like more guns and lasers on its head and shoulders so this thing's kind of armed to the teeth here and and they're still wishing they had model two. Uh, you know, it should have had amazing enhancements, but they kind of did our best. Um, and then as, as they're finishing up these sort of combat tests, Kratzy gets a call uh, from lab security who apparently all ran away uh, and weren't there to help defend the lab. He says, oh, what? It's gone? What do you mean gone? I see. All right, I'll handle this. He's like, get your team together. We're giving Model 1 its first field test. And all right, so I guess they're in pursuit, hunting down the Max 2 armor, Spitfire, and all the troubleshooters. Wait, that wasn't the end of the issue? No, we got like pages to go. <laughs> oh, what the heck? Lots and lots to go. We will, uh, everyone like, you know, drives off and it's like, all right, next time we'll get those troublesome troubleshooters. <laughs> no, okay. Yeah, I mean, you even gave their catchphrase, right? You know, gear <laughs> up troubleshooters and move out. Right? Move and, out. But we were done. We're done. Oh, page 15. I see. Page 15. Okay. No, we're on 16. We're... Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Page 16. All righty. Let's, let's. Dive back into our. All right, hold on a second. All right, so so we cut to forty five minutes later, and the Max One is in the air, uh, and basically, you know, trying to follow its thermal image. It's kind of one of those old school kind of movie tropes. Of course, you can see the thermal tire tracks or something. Uh, with Kratzy and Phelan following behind in a limousine, kind of taking the the chill approach. Um, so yeah, they're following the lab truck's heat emissions. Um, and Phelan's like, maybe we should call the police. Uh, it's like, maybe, let's see. I'd like to avoid any messy investigation, Kratzy says. Um, so of course, he also might be up to no good because he seems like a bad guy. Um, and so as they're talking, you know, they get an image and they spot it, right? So they found it 10 miles west 
west of the highway. So everything is going to work out just fine for Kratzy, apparently. Um, so the... Is he Spitfire also? I, I can't <laughs> He's drinking Spitfire soda. <laughs> um, so the... The trucks have basically pulled into some kind of, it looks like some kind of quarry, like a winding road down into it, kind of way off the road. Um, of course, you've got these bright uh, red, blue, and yellow. So I'm not sure what happened to the green one. I guess the green one turned yellow. Oh, no, it's green again. Slight coloring error. Um, uh, big trucks. And they have even have big numbers on them, one, two, and three, uh, to make them more subtle and disguisable. <laughs> Um, that's, that's the part that's really over the top. I mean, the, the <clears throat> primary colors make sense and like you want to distinguish them, but the big numbers just, okay. okay. <laughs> well, if you try to put together like a cool road avenging team of, you know, troublemakers, troubleshooters, you know, you got to give them cool color coordinated trucks and like jumpsuits and stuff. Yeah, I guess. I just like to imagine Professor Swenson like painting these things, right? Like, obviously, like, could he have gotten away with custom ordering them and moving them? No, in? no, no. Green was number two. Two. <laughs> How many times do I have to tell you people? It's not a green two. It's a red two on the truck. How? Why, why do you keep getting confused? There's simple it's directions. Like... It's all here in the contract. <laughs> uh, so... Um, yeah, again, they're feeling a little a little nervous about kind of being out in the middle of nowhere um, after just having stolen a lab built into tractor trailer trucks. And uh, Jenny says, open up truck one. Um, and truck one is the one that contains the big red Max Mark II armor. And so Jenny's kind of thinking to herself, oh, I got to get I got those kids out there in trouble. I'm supposed to be their teacher, not a gang leader. Like, I couldn't protect you, Dad, but I will protect them. So she kind of straps on the armor. It's got the like hydraulic lift. So from lying down, kind of lifts it up. And she's coming out of the truck in this big, impressive looking suit. Um, and it is pretty cool. Again, it's very blocky. Um, like it's not kind of, it, it looks a little bit like a kind of robot I would draw as a kid with like big shoulders and arms and hands and kind of stuff. Um, hey, I think that image is the one on the cover, like corner as well. Oh, yeah. There's, yeah, there's the exact image. So it walking out of the truck holding something is that front cover image that Marvel used to love and use all the time. Uh, something showing the the characters in the book. Uh, so she's holding on to some like cylinder shaped thing and says it's a digging tool. So it kind of like pops into action. Uh, it's like a handheld cylinder and she puts it up against the wall, uh, a rock wall and just starts drilling away. Uh, so she's basically burrowing a cave in order to uh, kind of hide themselves. Um, but it's also like throwing rock chips everywhere. So as she starts trying this thing out and smashing into the wall, it's, it's shooting high speed debris back at all the kids in the trucks and they all jump out of the way. It's like, oh, okay. Sorry, I never thought. You guys all right? Have you ever uh, talked to someone who worked in a coal mine? This is how, why they have little chips of coal in their like, legs and things. As machines and digging through earth and rock and getting too close to it. 
Yeah, I don't think they signed up for that. No, but presumably this is what the Max armor was designed by him to do, right? Like it's it's to replace construction machines. You know, it's powerful, but it can keep you safe. You know, it's here to do work, uh, not to be a weapon like some bad guy would be thinking. Um, so again, you know, we get some themes, you know, power is right, Eric. I was misusing it. I shouldn't have used the suit without testing it first. I should have thought before I acted. It'll take some time to learn all that Spitfire is able to do. You mean Max? <laughs> what does she? I mean, she calls it Spitfire when she herself. I mean, it's like <laughs> if I called things after myself. <laughs> Steven, put on your Steven suit. <laughs> uh, but as, as she's talking to them, uh, you can see kind of in the far background that the other suit has found them and it's kind of swooping in from behind. And we get a look out. Um, and the other Max suit, which is kind of a gray blue, swoops in, kind of knocks them aside, uh, lands, and immediately starts opening fire. Uh, and the guy inside's thinking, some kids and a woman with another Max suit. But it's a whole lot smaller. It's got no weapons I can see. It shouldn't be too hard to bring it down. Um, so, like, she just flips the lid on this thing, like the helmet, as, as just in time to not get shot. Um, and now it's time for Rock'em Sock'em Robot Throwdown. <laughs> so we get kind of, she's sweating it, uh, thinking about what she can do. You know, the transducers are show, showing overload. I'll let this thing cool. Or that's what the- <laughs> lithium crystals have gone nuts. I don't know. What to- <laughs> Try lithium or that's the next generation. <laughs> she's like well that's not what spitfire would do she's not going to play it safe (laughs) so basically just puts the thing into full power you know goes full speed into it and just gives it a wall punch Uh, they're talking uh, I'm not sure if they're in radio communication or just shouting through the walls of the suit Uh, probably radio communication but why would you listen to this guy um, he's like, are you crazy? He's like, not crazy, creep, just mad. Mad at you and mad at the man who sent you. Kratzy, right? Say it was Kratzy. It's like, ah, lucky punch. Um, so they can start zooming around, kind of flying, punching each other. Um, she's able to kind of keep it close uh, so that it can't use its weapons. And it splashes down. So the quarry they were fighting in uh, has water in it and it kind of dives down in with a splash um, <clears throat> and she's thinking it's done but it turns out it's kind of a fake out so it's hiding in the water and then kind of blasts up out and hits the suit so after getting blasted the suit crashes down so now they're both in the water uh, so as the kids look on trying to figure out what's going on the two suits are basically wrestling each other uh, we cut to Kratzy, who's kind of pleased with himself, kind of looking smug. And it's like, that woman, I suspect, is Carl Swenson's daughter. Only she would have known where to find the Max Model 2. She's stolen my property. I intend to get it back. Uh, and then turn her over to the police, because technically it's his stuff, I suppose. Um, I'm the good guy here. <laughs> so yeah, so the, the two suits are fighting it out underwater now. And the Jenny's max suit kind of uses like a oil spray trick to kind of confuse and distract the max mark one 
and then kind of slip around and give it like a solid, like double fisted thump on the top of the head. Uh, kind of like an older brother would do to its younger brother while fighting it out. <laughs> like just boom. Uh, it looks that, like it kind of. What's that? I don't think that was the move she used on the sensei earlier. So no. I'm not sure. <laughs> it would have been funny if it was though. Uh, but yeah, just thumped the thing in the head. Presumably knocked out, concussed, or killed the guy inside of it. Uh, and drags it out of the water. And they're like, you did it. <laughs> and... Yeah. But then, you know, are we at the end of the episode? No, not quite. Uh, all of the black cars and limos start uh, taking off. And Jenny's like, I don't think so. So she pulls out one more tool, a high-powered titanium Teflon buzzsaw, uh, basically like a hand saw, um, or a circular saw, I suppose, um, grabs it, catches up, jumps on top of the car, saws the lid open like a sardine can and like Phelan and Kratzi are in there and she's like you know Kratzi saw the suit's military potential more than a tool the max is a weapon maybe the deadliest weapon on earth wait wasn't the star brand the deadliest weapon on earth yeah that was just like the same week come on guys <laughs> which was the greatest weapon I... she picks him up and like puts the saw like right up to his face spinning like like right near his eyes like please don't please don't uh she kind of chills out it's like no dad built the suit to help people not hurt them you know now look what you're doing ride through the anger let it go or it will destroy you right we don't want to turn this thing into a combat suit this is important to jenny um and she kind of tosses him aside and she's like i'm gonna find proof uh, there's no place you can hide from Spitfire. <laughs> so a little menacing there. Uh, and then we get one last up epilogue uh, as they're all driving away happily in their color-coordinated cars, um, talking about going to a campsite in New Hampshire to kind of go hide for now. Um, and everybody's kind of happy. They start singing Google, like instead of 100 bottles of beer, a Googleplex bottles of beer, because that's what MIT people would do. Um, and then we get a nice nerds, nerds, nerds. And then that night, uh, our next issue clue in is Spitfire meets Starbrand in Starbrand number two. Then it's back here next month for a deadly battle with the Black Behemoth. Oh man, what? So yeah, I guess we're sh- she is Spitfire is showing up in Starbrand issue two, so we can see which one is in fact the deadliest weapon in the. All right. Planet. Well, we'll solve that problem. Uh, too sweet. Yeah, the um, it's it's a, it's funny that they're like having these crossover because they come out the same week, so it's not like you would obviously know otherwise know like which one comes before the other continuity wise, you know. Yeah, it's a good, well, hey, if you like this, make sure you check out that. Very true. Also, the Black Behemoth. A little uncomfortable with uh, that kind of terminology. <laughs> we'll see where we go from there. The large African-American. <laughs> yeah, you want to talk a little bit about Spitfire first or Starbrand first? Well, the... I mean, there's this, the, um, let's, I guess, start with Starbrand um, and maybe the new universe itself. 
we'll mention that like there's the universe news is a page of like an essay from Jim Shooter talking about the background and the I- basic ideas of the new universe. And then there's like the regular Marvel checklist of all the books that came out that month. Um, and the new universe is sort of set off with its own um, eight books. And it doesn't really give us much in the way of, um, you know, here's what's coming. It's just the um, creative teams for each of them, I think. Yeah. And um, there's a weird thing with the schedule where like Starbrand and Spitfire are like on the month before Marvel's schedule than the other books of the new universe. So they're always ahead in the numbering. Anyway, the, uh, the new universe, they talk a little about how they, they were trying to minimize fantastic elements and make something more realistic and grounded and part of it was that it's the regular world until the white event, which is like a, you know, a moment when this a white flash happens and then people get powers or something else happens in Starbrand, They said, the old man said there was this flash that drew his attention, and, you know, so it's not, it ties in a little, but neither of these books are like you, there was the white event and you got, superpowers from it in the same way right that's a little funny but i guess that's a way to kind of have it not changing everything too much right it's not chalk filled with people with superpowers kind of thing yeah i mean it gives you a a good like place to start is like well we start with the real the, the world you know and um we'll just add in a few people with powers and how do they react What's, you know, what did they do? And that's, I, I think, how, how a lot of these books are starting. Um, yeah, and that's kind of seemed like what he was trying to go for in Universe News a little bit is like, you know, the Marvel Universe was kind of a jump ahead in realism in terms of sort of characterization, but just, you know, realistic people, not just magical super people all the time. Uh, but then this new universe was supposed to be like an, an, another jump ahead, even more realistic kind of, it's much, much more like the world we know. Um, right. It's um, the Marvel universe has even at this point been around long enough to develop, you know, mil- millions, it seems of alien species and different things living at the center of the earth and yeah a ton of backstory and like (laughs) so much backstory i mean it it goes to the dawn of time now i don't know right into the future and so it's a lot to to grab hold of here you've got books that are sort of starting from you know that day they came out and you know you just assume everything else in the backstory is the same history you would read about in the textbook or the newspaper or whatever yeah sometimes they're a little loose but um as they say they try to keep the fantastic elements to a minimum anyway right. and yeah this the star brand book then was kind of like a good first jump because that is although there's a lot of like here's the characters kind of there's a lot of setup in it it's also very much like okay here's a regular guy with infinite power what's he gonna do like okay freak out wet his pants explode things <laughs> you know? 
Yeah, he's it's a little bit beyond Peter Parker because like he yeah, he's a regular guy who gets suddenly some power. It's a little I mean, it's more of a Green Lantern power or a Superman power than than you know, the sort of more limited Marvel hero power. Um and yeah, he's he's still like yeah, that's nice. Anyway, I've got this one girl over here and I got this other girl maybe and I could, you know, Where's your head at? Um, I don't know. I'll get to these aliens next week, I guess. Whatever. But <laughs> I mean, if, if you're juggling two ladies and a weirdo buddy, then you know you really don't have that much time to fight aliens. Do not. Um, so it's kind of the flagship character. Like we said, Shooter was the editor in chief at the time and was driving this whole initiative. So there's something about Starbrand that he wanted to say. I think. And, you know, having it be this sort of most powerful character in the new universe, I think we'll see. Um, and, and I don't know the, the way he positioned it at the, it, it's going to be um, one to keep your eye on. Anyway, I think. Or your ear on with the, Marvel podcast, uh, comic podcast, <laughs> indeed. Um, so I, I really enjoy this up this issue of Starbrand. I mean, it gets off to a really strong start. I think it's kind of surprising they had two fights and um, some like more um, advanced storytelling techniques with these uh, memories or maybe false memories where you're like. Is this really what happened, or is Ken kind of an unreliable narrator because he was hypnotized into thinking this is what happened? And uh, I mean, that's that's fun. I mean, you know, you a lot of the comics start off with like you were bitten by a radioactive spider. That's exactly what happened. Now you you know, right? There's no question. So, um, did we save the spider? I guess not. <laughs> um. You want to give it a rating or more? You know, so as we say, originally I called it a B plus, I think. Um, tempted to take, kick it up to A minus because it, it's uh, my fondness for it always. Like the more I, I read it, the more I enjoy it. I don't know. So if you read it yet again, when we have to re-record it, then... <laughs> Grade goes up. That'll be the I, best yeah, I had book a, I have ever a, read in my life. I had an A minus, and I will stick to A minus. It's a great book. Um, not the perfect book, but still a great book. And you don't always want to put the A out first, like the first book ever. You know, we will never top ourselves with this. Yeah, yeah, right. So let's uh, hedge our bets and give it a A minus. Then, mm. and then uh, Spitfire and the Troubleshooters. What do you think yourself? Yeah, that's a solid B for me in Spitfire. It's a lot of fun. I mean, it's got the kind of, you know, I, as a college professor, I always approve of any use of the crusty old dean or the troublesome kids who are causing problems kind of thing. Um, obviously, I didn't go to MIT, but, you know, Revenge of the Nerds, you know, Real Genius, those movies of the time, you know, you can definitely see some vibe of that going there with, you know, 
It's because she's always name dropping every like school she went to, and it's all like Stanford and Caltech and MIT and everything, <laughs> making me look bad. <laughs> yeah, we are very respectable degrees. I don't know. Yeah, it's 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 fun. It's a little more cartoonish. Um, you know, we got to see where they're going from there. Obviously, they're setting up, uh, you know, this sort of conflict of, you know, she feels that she's right, but also has to kind of break the law to get there. Um, it also like there's a lot of parallels with the plot of the first Iron Man movie, where like Tony Stark is kind of like fighting against his own corporation, and he's got this suit, and then they're kind of fighting over it, kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's. Mm-hmm. 20 years before that so I'll, I'll cut it some slack for feeling familiar but yeah it's uh you know that it feels like they want to set her up as sort of more like robin hood like you know forced to be on the run and i'm not sure that's the best way to go because you could also be i am a spitfire i am iron man you know uh, mm-hmm. be the public uh, superhero and I think my my I've got a better sense of it now rereading it, but the the biggest drawback I had from the originally was the uh, difficulty in telling the troubleshooters apart and lack of individuality or individual characteristics. Um, so you know it's uh, that that's BB plus for me, yeah. Enjoyable. This went on. Let's see. Starbrand was like twenty-four pages, and Spitfire was twenty-five. Yeah. So they really, yeah, squeezing some extra in there. That was yeah. In a, in a modern comic, this might have been like three issues worth or something. Like <laughs> yes. they spread it out so much, or like a whole graphic novel. By the time they get to the end of it, so I I appreciate the. Uh, quicker style though maybe it's a little much but still pretty solid it's fun it's a little difficult for us when we try to describe everything so yeah (laughs) yeah but it's hard at this point it's really hard to figure out who's who uh who's driving which colored truck and all that (laughs) and the the many different uses of spitfire are, are a little well anyway yeah this is also spitfire really um okay let's uh yeah, so should we wrap it up for this week that sounds good um, so what are you gonna be so next week uh or next podcast episode for you guys we'll be doing night mask number one uh, orphaned keith remsen is a counselor aided by his sister teddy who uses his newfound ability to enter people's dreams to help them recover from trauma and mental illness and Cyforce number one, Cyforce is a group of teenage paranormal psychics on the run from a government that seeks to control them. They can meld their abilities into a powerful psionic being called the Cyhawk. So mm-hmm. once again, remember, we have a website now, kickersinc.com, and a Twitter account, at kickersinc. And remember, this is actually a re-recorded version of the first episode to make up for the bad sound quality. So we have now been doing this for like a year. We hope if you're interested enough to follow along, you'll excuse how rough some of these early episodes were and enjoy them. 
We also have an intro episode and a six month catch up you can check out. So until uh, you listen to us again, we will see you back at the spinner rack. All right. Glad to have you with us. <laughs>